Hey, Alpaca Pals. As you know, Katie and I are on break right now to work on putting together the next season of the show. In the meantime, we're popping into your feed every few weeks to share an older episode of Alpaca My Bags. We're sharing our personal favorites so that you can revisit them. I chose today's episode with Sojourner White, which explores some complicated isms, colonialism, neocolonialism, and ethnocentrism. I really love this episode because Sojourner is so talented at helping regular folks like Katie and I understand what these isms mean and why they're relevant to travel. So with that, let's dive in. According to 2013 research from the World Trade Organization, just $5 out of every $100 that's spent in a global South country stayed in that destination. Why is this happening? The problem is that foreign business owners and investors are able to pick and choose the elements of the country that they want to sell for their own financial gain. All-inclusive resorts that are owned by Western companies but operate in the global south are an example of this power dynamic. Today on Alpaca My Bags, we're going to explore what's behind power dynamics like this. Colonialism, neocolonialism, and ethnocentrism. There is a lot to unpack about these isms, especially when it comes to how they intersect with travel. To help us unpack them, we're chatting with Sojourner White. Sojourner is an international social worker and travel blogger, and she hosts an Instagram TV series called Let's Unpack That. In every video, she unpacks the meaning behind a term and how it relates to travel. We have learned so much from watching Let's Unpack That, so we're super excited to have Sojourner here to unpack some things with us. Welcome to the show, Sojourner. Thank you for having me. I'm a big fan. I'm excited to have you too. I I literally love your Unpack That series and like referred to several episodes putting these notes together, so (laughs) it's going to be fun. Okay, so to dive right in, what is colonialism? And I think a good follow-up question is, does it still happen? Yes, keeping it light, keeping it light. <laughs> um, so colonialism in my very colloquial, non-academic terms, is just pretty much taking over land that is not yours and treating the people with all kinds of disrespect. In the past, we've seen it cause genocide. When you think about the Atlantic slave trade of people like me, I'm a Black American, so my ancestors were brought to the U.S. Uh, due to colonialism. Um, to be enslaved in in the U.S. Uh, you think about how the United States was created and the genocide of indigenous populations. And to your next question of, is it still happening today? Yes, because they are still fighting for their land. So pretty much any control where one group takes over another, takes the land, its people, and then just totally over overrules it and overhauls it to create their own it's a very basic definition of colonialism Mm -hmm. I think it's good to give like the layman's term definition because it's actually like such a complicated thing to like understand there's so many aspects to colonialism especially in the context of history I like studied in university post-colonial literature and that was like two years of studying literature and I still feel like I don't have like a perfect handle on really what colonialism does like to us societally yeah and it's hard too because it connects to all of this like colonialism 
racism that we see today is also rooted in colonialism um, when it comes to black and brown populations being enslaved across the globe um, to do work that white people did not want to do across the globe. So it's so interconnected. I think it's really easy to think of colonialism as this thing that's in the past. I think like in a lot of a lot of the time when we talk about it, we talk about it as if it's this thing that's in the past, which is like, as you just said, completely incorrect. And it's not only that like colonialism is still persisting today. I think we also see a lot of lasting effects of it all over the world, even in regions where like they're allegedly in a post-colonial state. So yeah, when I was in school, I took several courses in post-colonial literature, which exposed me to a lot of books that explored the impacts of colonialism after it's officially, I'm putting that in air quotes, (laughs) over. So like you said, there's economic inequalities and systemic racism that persists afterwards. And a lot of the literature I studied also touched on the psychological and the emotional impacts And something I learned about that has really like stuck with me since being in school was this concept of intergenerational trauma, which is this idea that even when something horrible like colonialism has officially, again, air quotes, ended, the trauma that it causes on people is passed down through generations. And I think it's important, especially for this discussion, and especially for people like myself who are descendants of colonizers, I literally like am a colonial person living in Canada, like this land is indigenous. Yeah, I think it's important to acknowledge this history because it is still at work today. Are there any other post-colonial impacts that you think are important to note? And maybe some other reasons that you think it's important for us to acknowledge and understand colonialism? I think the generational trauma part is really impactful, especially because as a social worker, that's something we talk about all the time. When I was in grad school was about generational trauma. What does it mean? Every day we can feel the post-colonial impacts. Um, When you think about like for me, you know, being a black woman in higher education and social work, that is a primarily led by white women. You know, that is a post-colonial impact as far as who was who was given the resources to start this field and then how it's transformed um, to what it is today. When we also think about colonialism, acknowledging the historical part is really beneficial in that communities didn't forget. <laughs> I know our political memories are very, very short and the way that we process information, we're always getting information. So to intake it all, remember it all, I understand that. And there are communities that have never forgotten. I remember growing up, my parents teaching me about history of like Black people that I did, was not learning in school. And so all of that is still part of a post-colonial world and we're still living in it. So a lot of things that we attribute today where you're talking about like white supremacy or systemic racism, which I think in the last year have become like buzzwords uh, a lot. Those are all post-colonial impacts that we just don't connect with as much because because we tend to see them as like single issues and and they're definitely not. Mm-hmm. And actually, you just made me realize something about the education bit, like thinking back to studying post-colonialism, pretty much all of my professors were white, which is like a very problematic irony in this. It's like, why are you teaching this history? Like, perhaps it should be the people who lived it and experienced it and continue to experience that are teaching this. Yeah. And then also the ownership of the stories and like 
the texts and the books that we read? Like whose stories are we reading and whose point of view is it being written from in a post-colonial world? Uh, is it being written by black and brown indigenous people who have been, who were the ones who all this happened to, or is it from the people who did the colonizing? Okay, so we've talked about colonialism. Now we're going to move on to another related ism, which is neocolonialism. Um, so, how would you describe neocolonialism? Yes. So, when I did the Let's Unpack That on colonialism versus neocolonialism, I myself was very confused because I thought they were all one thing. And then as I got into the technical terms, neocolonialism is pretty much colonialism that's happening today. The neo part is like the modern part right the parts that we don't necessarily uh think of and so when we're talking about colonialism or neocolonialism you're often talking about global north countries and global south countries so you have global north countries which in past language has been referred to as developed countries or western countries uh so the u.s canada Western European countries, Australia, etc. Um, and then you have global South countries that are primarily Latin America. So Mexico, Central America, South America, Southeast Asia, with a few exceptions, and then the majority of Africa, right? So that's generally what's considered global South. And so neocolonialism and colonialism are referring to the divides between those two areas of the world, very large uh, categories of areas of the world, but also the power dynamics that go into them and having one country, one section of the world, aka the global north, having more power over the global south then and also continuing now when you think about tourism in particular, as we're seeing with the pandemic and then other areas like trade, education, etc. So it's pretty much colonialism that's happening currently that we may or may not be fully aware of. Yeah, I think the pandemic is such a prime example because I've seen like in my travel communities now, all of these Americans especially saying now like, oh, I'm excited to travel. Where can I travel to? And like people comment back saying, you realize the pandemic has not ended in the rest of the world. And this is a demonstration of that power structure. America had the means to vaccinate really quickly. And so they're at a completely different stage than essentially like the entire world. And then even the reliance on tourism by some countries that are pretty much forced to reopen because large part of their economy is linked to tourism dollars. Yeah. And now that I think about it, like I think about Mexico and they barely ever even closed their borders like throughout all of this, I guess, because of that power dynamic. Again, they needed the tourism. So just to clarify, neocolonialism refers more so to colonial practices that have started in modern times. Whereas when we're talking about like the persistence of colonialism, let's give an example like of indigenous peoples in Canada that started back in like the 18th century. So that's just continued colonialism. What they're experiencing today, would that be neocolonialism or is that still the original colonialism? That's the gray area because I asked uh, one of my mentors about the differences and she was like, neo just means now. Like that really is what it's referring to, just a new term. Academia, we all know, loves to create 
new words. <laughs> um, language always changes. But from yeah. my understanding, um, neocolonialism are current practices that we're having. Not saying it's all connected, right? But if we're talking about modern day things, I'm not indigenous, so I can't say what is colonialism to them because historically, if it's happening then, I would still attribute it to now if it's still continuing. So when I discuss neocolonialism, that's why I use more current examples, not necessarily referring to, like, for example, the enslavement of Black Americans in particular. So I just use more now, I don't want to say relevant because that's really bad language, but examples that people may recognize in their day-to-day life. Um, so in your Let's Unpack That video that talks about neocolonialism, you give some examples of it in travel. And one of them was teaching abroad programs. And I thought this was a great example because we actually touched on this in a recent episode, episode 64, Our guests, Sapphire and Crystal, explained how white Westerners who teach English in Asia tend to receive special treatment. Um, One of the examples they gave us was that they're often paid a higher wage than a local would be. And that discussion got me thinking not just about teaching abroad, but the movement of digital nomads who are moving to the global south because they can live cheaply there with a better quality of life. I've actually seen a lot of discussion about this on Twitter, especially during the pandemic, and people have been actively pointing out the colonial undertones of this. So I was hoping you could explain um, from your own perspective how teaching abroad programs, or if you like, how digital nomad life can be neocolonial. Yeah, so I've done both of these. (laughs) Um, So definitely speaking from experience, because it's something that I didn't realize though until I got back. So there's actually a really great article that helped me contextualize this when I got back from teaching English abroad. I did it through the Fulbright program from 2016 to 2017. And it was on How Not to Travel Like a Basic Bitches website. And it was by uh, Lena. I think I'm pronouncing her name correctly. But she wrote about how teaching English abroad is neocolonialism because part of colonialism and neocolonialism is the spread of languages, right? And having, you know, one language or in general, the way white supremacy functions, that there can only be an either or or a one thing. Like it has to be this. And so that's kind of how teaching English abroad was put into that episode because the weight that English is given in other destinations compared to the languages of the country themselves is a power imbalance. It's like, if you know English, then you can do anything. That's not by coincidence, right? We're not speaking English here by coincidence. I don't know my history pre-slavery by coincidence. And so it's one of those things where is it a great opportunity to go abroad? Yes. Is it going to end? Probably not. But there are some implications as to the really long-term impact we will see, which should be interesting about how the prevalence of teaching English abroad um, fast tracks the impact of having English being the business or universal language. And then with digital nomad life is also part of uh, neocolonialism just because digital nomad life, in my opinion, is a little more complicated because even in global North countries, being a digital nomad is still a luxury. So it's one of those things where it is when you go abroad and I've been a digital nomad and whatnot um, in, in the past and probably sometime in the future. But I think 
it can get really tricky when you talk about like living in luxury and other destinations where luxury is not afforded to everyone else. I know this definitely came up on Twitter with a big Bali situation a few months ago about people being deported because of that. Uh, So it's really about how do you move when you do these types of programs to not have the colonial tendencies? Because when we do go abroad as tourists, as digital nomads, in any capacity, we are expats who have currency privilege you know our money can stretch in destinations we're able to live in the city centers you know in ways where you may not even have locals as neighbors anymore because the cost of living has gone up in those areas and so it's that unintentional impact that you may not think about in the moment but then you sit back and you're like wait am I replicating harm and which is a difficult conversation to have it's definitely not a comfortable one and no one wants to hear it because they think that you're saying you're a bad person but really it's talking about privilege and what privileges do you have and privilege doesn't mean you're a horrible person like it depends on how like what are you going to do with it and how are you going to leave your mark it means you just have the absence of certain barriers and obstacles that others have to overcome and so thinking it from that perspective and understanding its impact from that point of view will hopefully get people thinking about our impact um, because no one's telling you not to do these things because you're probably going to do whatever you want to do. <laughs> like that's just kind of how the world works. Um, but also if you are going to do it, how do you lessen the blow for lack of a better phrase? Yeah. And it's tough because I mean, I know a lot of people in the travel community, like teaching English abroad is like an awesome opportunity that lots of people do without. And I understand why, like you, you wouldn't, your mind doesn't directly think, oh, is this neo-colonial? And so, yeah, it's tough. Like, do you think there's a way that we can participate in these activities that is more responsible? Is it just about like bringing awareness to it and thinking about our privilege? But, or is there action? Is there a way we can do it in a way that's like less neo-colonial? I definitely think there is. And it's something that I wrestle with as like, who who probably has plans in the future to be a digital nomad it's like that well how do I do this ethically because I don't want to replicate harm right and I think for me the way at least I'm thinking about it I think about like my own community right especially being a black person in the U.S. I don't want to replicate the structures that I feel in the U.S. and someone else's country and so it's like okay if someone was moving in my community what kind of demeanor would I want them to have? You know, how would I want them to connect with me? Because I think when you think about your own, and I guess it also depends upon your connection to community um, and how much that means to you. It's like, okay, how do I make sure my money is going into the hands of locals? How do I make sure that I'm making an effort to learn the language? How do I make sure I'm, you know, if I'm being digital nomad and I have a fully remote job, is there a way I can get involved in the community ethically? Doesn't mean I have to lead anything. You know, it doesn't mean I have to be the face of literally like nothing. Like if you are going to do something, it should not be about you to be about okay how can I help in a way that is you know less harmful is there something especially if you're in a, you're in a destination for a longer period of time for like a few months there's some time for you to kind of get to know what's going on seeing how you can offer um, your skill set I know I did some work it wasn't in a global south country per se but I did some like extra volunteer work when I lived in Spain because they just needed I saw a flyer for volunteers I'm like well they're looking for people I don't really have to do much but here's what I can contribute because 
there are very few situations or professions or lifestyles where we aren't going to cause harm on somebody else. Like that's just unfortunately the world that we live in. But it's really about if we're not going to totally redo these structures in this moment and tear everything down and start anew. Okay, then what are things that we can do? And I think a big part of that is acknowledging the fact that you may have privileges in other countries that you don't have in your home country. I know as a Black American, I've been wrestling with that a lot. You know, yes, I'm a Black woman, but also born and raised in the U.S. Granted, that's also linked to colonialism is the reason why I'm here, but that doesn't negate the fact that I have this privilege now. So it's like, all right, so how am I going to handle it? How am I going to make sure that when I go somewhere, you know, I'm not exploiting maybe other black people who don't have this u.s american privilege <laughs> these are the things that keep me up at night when i think about <laughs> my love of travel and being a travel blogger and a travel writer and making sure that i'm not replicating the very things that i talk about in my own series mm-hmm. and actually like your points about community i when i think about the instances in which i've seen people criticized online for the way that they're engaging in like digital nomad life. It's often been people who are in these pockets that are really kind of like an island unto themselves. Bali, for example, where you can go and live in Bali and you will live not at, not even remotely in the way that local Balinese people live because they've built up this uh, space that basically is comfortable for people who yeah, are coming from privilege. And I've seen this in in Guatemala as well. There's this town that's like infamous on like added land because it's just so, it's just like not Guatemala at all. It's just this place that's like eons away from what Mayan culture would be. Um, And it's been built up that way because of the presence of digital nomads. Yeah. And I think that kind of points to how in those instances, people aren't actually participating in local culture and community and like making those ties. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, too, even with the local part, I remember one of my episodes, someone commented like, yes, we should engage with local culture, but also be aware of the power dynamics that we have. So it's a very delicate balance. And people always want to, again, white supremacy has taught us it's either or but it's like it's a yes and for everything like there is a yes you can do this and also think about all these other things that can be that can be impacted when you do it as well Mm -hmm. you mentioned travel blogging and I was just thinking like I I think it's even that is such an example of neocolonialism because I know when I started blogging I realized like so quickly everyone All the blogs I read are written by white women, essentially, who have the privilege of visiting and writing about a global South country, and it's always from their own perspective. And I don't know, I started to think a lot about how problematic it is that like these communities of mainly white writers are shaping narratives of a place and perceptions of a place, and often neglecting the voice of the local people of that country. So it's kind of interesting, I find, that like even this thing that like so many of us are doing ourselves is just such a prime example of neocolonialism in travel. Yeah, and I think too with the travel blogging, not only we, you mentioned like only reading white women, but I know for me it was like, okay, like I love Black travel, but also broadening my scope of Blackness, um, which I think expanded a lot when I did start traveling internationally like I knew there were international populations in the U.S. but when you go abroad you definitely learn about it in a slightly different way and so I know for me I've 
diversify who I follow myself, following other like South African travel bloggers and Kenyan travel bloggers and just travel bloggers of different nationalities and ethnicities and just kind of getting a nice blend of people because they are popping up a lot more and they're often writing about their own countries, right? You know, as travel bloggers, we hop around and write about places and I write a little bit about my hometown of Milwaukee and being in the US, but they write about their countries that we like lust after. You know, they're from South Africa and so they can write about it in a way that one is in the voice of someone who was from there, right, born and raised, but also in a way that isn't this deficit based or this kind of exoticism, is that a word, of global South destinations, which is what you see in a lot of Western led or global North led publications. You know, when you look at lists of where you should visit around the world or like the happiest places in the world they're predominantly white countries like how like how do you find in all the countries in the world you mean tell me the first 50 countries are all predominantly white you know like how do you how does that work how do we get to this point and how do we I'm asking questions you're asking me questions this is (laughs) <laughs> this is going to be hilarious. But even looking at those lists and understanding, you know, where you can travel on a budget, that's rooted in currency privilege as travel bloggers. Like, my money can stretch in other destinations. I still may love the de- destination and visiting there, but how do I put my money or where my mouth is or where my words are, quite mm-hmm. literally? Yeah. We actually did an episode talking about like how even the concept of like budget traveling is a bit problematic because it's like now you're literally seeking out to go to another country and give it as few resources as you possibly can. Okay, so I think we have a solid handle on colonialism and neocolonialism, which brings me to another term that's related that you unpacked in one of your Let's Unpack That videos, and that's ethnocentrism. I honestly had like very little understanding of this, so it was super helpful for me to watch that video. And I think it's important to talk about this term in the context of colonial neocolonialism. So can you unpack ethnocentrism for us and explain how it relates to concepts of colonialism? Yes, this episode actually came from a friend of mine because we were talking about it. But ethnocentrism, again, in my regular sojourner terms, is just this superiority complex that you can have when you make assumptions about a culture and you judge it based off the standards of your own, which again is linked to a power dynamic and thinking that your country's culture and customs and traditions are just better than someone else's. It comes out of like social cultural anthropology originally, um, but it's something that we may or may not fully be aware of. Like subconsciously or consciously, you may be like, oh, this is weird, which is like a language thing, right? Saying something is weird. But the underlying cause of all of that is ethnocentrism because it's weird because you don't understand it. You know, it's weird because it doesn't make sense to you based on what you've learned. But we all know that in theory, travel should be about expanding what you think you know about the world and gaining new perspectives. And so ethnocentrism is a reactionary response. I would define it or I would say it's a reactionary response um, for a lot of travelers, but it definitely has some deep rooted consequences when you think about colonialism and neocolonialism especially colonialism because when you look at 
for example, this is, I'll use this example, like Pocahontas, right? We all saw, if you're a 90s baby, you probably you know. saw Pocahontas <laughs> as a kid and the way they talked about, you know, her people, her culture, even though that's not like a, the most realistic reenactment of what happened, but even the language of calling people savages or barbaric, like all of that is ethnocentrism because you're, you're just assuming all of these things about another culture that you have no idea what it's actually about when you just landed like a few days ago, you know? And so that's really what ethnocentrism is. And it can be detrimental if people change that unknowingness to fear and like say, no, well, y'all, well, y'all need to live like us, which then the extreme is colonialism. Mm, So in a way, like ethnocentrism kind of feeds colonialism. Yeah, like it's one of the root causes. You'll never see it outlined like they did this because they were ethnocentric. But you'll see they did it out of fear of the unknown, which is literally what what can bring out your ethnocentrism. Mm hmm. And we'll talk a bit more about like how fear feeds it, but maybe it's like easier to talk about it in the context of an example. So you gave an example of your first lived experience of ethnocentrism in your video. Could you share that example? Yes. So an example of ethnocentrism in my own experience when I studied abroad in Granada, Spain, and part of our program went to Morocco. Because for those who don't know, Southern Spain and Morocco have a lot of history. Uh, with each other and so it was part of our understanding of Granada we had to go to to Morocco and part of that trip we were in like you know the cities like Asila but then we went to the Rift Mountains and I had to go on a squatty potty and it was my first time out of the country I was 20 years old and they had told me this would be a thing but we had stayed with host families and my host family didn't have a squatty potty so I hadn't really faced it until like the last day or two and I remember walking in I remember looking down and looking back at my friends and looking back down and looking around and saying oh this is a squatty potty like this is what they were talking about and it was it's a very minor thing and I didn't know it was ethnocentrism at the time but in my mind I'm like why do they have these like why don't they just have a toilet and it's like sojourner think about it and so it's again at least in my experience it was that initial reaction like wait what because like you freeze you're in a new place you don't know what's going on and so you're just like wait back home we like do it this way and that's a very minor example, but it can it can really make or break like a lot of people study abroad experiences depending upon where they are. Um, so that was my first, at least the first one I can remember of kind of understanding what ethnocentrism is once I had the language to describe what I felt. I wanted to talk about that example because I also had like basically the exact same experience when I traveled in Asia and I was there for several months. So using a squat toilet was like, it was inevitable. Like I was going to have to do it. And at first I didn't like them because it's different. It's new, which of course was my ethnocentrism showing, but I actually really came to love them. And by the end of the trip, like the end of the nine months there, it was my preference. If I had the choice, I went for the squat toilet because I liked them more. I found it a better experience. And this was kind of a good lesson for me in understanding how I should be willing to embrace and appreciate cultural norms that are different from my own. And so I thought, 
talking about this was like an interesting idea because it makes me think that it's possible to take our ethnocentrism and evolve it to get to a place of understanding and of cultural acceptance and appreciation. So I was just thinking, do you think it's possible once you have the language and you can actually self-reflect about your experiences of ethnocentrism to use that as a starting point to evolve yourself into more of um a place of cultural appreciation. I definitely think that's a good connection to make because, you know, culture shock is real, you know, like going somewhere new, no matter what your background is, can be a lot. And it's really just about how do you take that experience and make it work? Because again, if you're going to go someone else's country or a city, you have to be prepared that there are going to be things that you are not going to fully understand. And I definitely think it has a possibility to to fully evolve. I know for me, like when I went to study abroad in Spain, this eating at 9 p.m. and like this really big lunch scenario, I was like, I'm hungry. Like, I don't get this. Like, why do y'all wait so long to eat? But now I'm like, I understand why lunch is the biggest meal of the day. Like, I get it because... Like it, it makes sense to me now and it's really a journey and you have to be willing to surrender yourself to that kind of process, uh, which then, as you mentioned, you can have that evolved understanding of, you know, a culture because as much as people like say, I'm down for anything. No, you're not like, no, you aren't. And it's you have to be honest with yourself when you go abroad. And I think in order to possibly minimize the effects of ethnocentrism and culture shock is being having that radical openness with with who you are and what your boundaries are before you go and then knowing that that can change. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned earlier that ethnocentrism can be rooted, it's rooted in difference, but it can also be rooted in these feelings of fear that we have for things that are different. What is the connection between our feelings of fear and ethnocentrism and how can we address that fear? Yeah, so I think one, you mentioned that that difference and that comparison. Because when you go somewhere else, you're like, oh, that's like at home. Or, oh, we do that there. Oh, we don't do that there. Which is, I think, a natural reaction when you're trying to understand a place. But then it comes to a point where you may experience too much change. Where you, you may say, no, this is a little too much for me. And so that is kind of when the ethnocentrism creeps in. Does that mean you're right no does that mean you're wrong not necessarily but who are we to say I'm fearful of this because I don't know what it is I don't understand it so I'm gonna just think my culture is better that's not how it should be just because you don't understand something doesn't mean you should fear it it just means that it may be it may be a different way of life of eating of thinking of drinking of working um, because be honest, I think the U.S. can learn a few things from Europe when it comes to days off and vacation time, <laughs> but um, <laughs> and just general quality of life. <laughs> general quality of life. There are some cultural differences <laughs> that people can be fearful of, but it's really about how you how you stand up to that fear. Um, and if you do let it overcome you, ethnocentrism is going to occur, and your whole experience will be shaped by your fear of experience which defeats the whole purpose of travel I actually find like you just have me thinking about when I traveled through India specifically because that was definitely like the most intense feelings of culture shock that I ever had like traveling and I was afraid a lot and 
my reaction was always to, I literally had like a note in my phone. I didn't have data on my phone, but I would just keep this list of things that I needed to understand. So like, for example, the honking, like people honk their horns a lot and I didn't understand it. And so I literally wrote in my phone, Google why people honk their horns so much in the city in India. And creating this sort of ongoing list was therapeutic for me because every time something confused or puzzled me, I would just write it down. And that evening, I would sit in my hotel room and Google and find the answers. And I don't know, I can't speak for everyone, but for me, doing a bit of research to try to understand something that I didn't understand or that was different made it much easier for me to then get to a place of appreciating it. No, that's a good point. I really like that tip, actually. I used to do something similar. I, I'm a journal writer, so I love like just opening my journal anywhere and people watching and just jotting stuff down. But it is very therapeutic because in the moment, it can be a lot. Like it can be a lot if you're unprepared, even if you do all the research beforehand, read all of the literature, all the books, some things you just have to experience. I think that that kind of method is is really beneficial. Totally. But also pre-research is good too. I yes. definitely do that. I always Google like, okay, what are the cultural norms that I'm going to experience in this new country? Exactly. So I've said it before, I will say it again. I love your Unpack That series, and I encourage everyone to go and binge it. But I love it because it's teaching us all to think about these like sometimes really overwhelming concepts that are related to our experiences of travel. I think that knowing and understanding these concepts is one thing, but then how can we take this knowledge and then apply it to do better as travelers? So I'm wondering if you have specific tips for travelers who want to address their ethnocentrism and neocolonialism. And actually, I've seen the phrase like decolonized travel. How do we do that? It's so funny because I did a whole thing about how I don't want to be categorized as decolonizing travel, but I think I have to kind of accept that it is what I'm doing. I'm just very, the word decolonize is like a lifestyle for me, which is why my platform is like a travel and lifestyle because I believe it has to be you know a way of life uh, but in particular tips I think the one you gave about jotting down experiences that don't make sense to you is a really good one um, I would also say being mindful of how we refer to destinations I kind of mentioned earlier like the barbaric savage weird is one that I know I use so often I'm trying to get out of my language but language is so powerful and it shapes how we view other people especially me as a travel blogger and writer like there's power in my words and so being mindful of the way that I describe people and things and my experiences when I travel is something I recommend to other people uh, which requires a lot of reflection I know people don't like to write but listen let me tell you, writing something down is so beneficial. Um, so then you can go back to it and see how far you've come later or just jot it down so you can remember to, as you mentioned earlier, look it up later or just write down how you're feeling. If you're feeling overwhelmed and you don't have anybody to talk to, a pen and paper, you know, is literally just you releasing your thoughts. And so um, writing it down. And then if you are going to engage with people in the destination you're in, listening to them not always of course if they want to talk to you they will if they don't want to talk to you don't force anybody to talk to you either that's a whole other power dynamic as tourists um 
when interacting with locals, but just listening to people and their stories and, you know, being quiet. There is power in silence. There is power in just sitting and observing and not centering yourself at all times. And I think decentering ourselves when we're traveling is one of the best things uh, that we can do and just getting out of our own heads and our own perspectives. Absolutely. Okay, so I know this last year has been pretty low key when it comes to travel. And I know I've mentioned it in other episodes already, but in not being able to travel internationally, this past year has really gotten me to appreciate my home province in a way that I definitely did not before. And I'm honestly embarrassed about it. I'm embarrassed about how little I knew about literally the place I grew up. So all that to say, have you learned any travel lessons from this last pandemic year? And are there any destinations that you discovered in your own backyard that you want to talk about? Yes. So I'm actually from Milwaukee, Wisconsin originally, Uh, but I really, I'm a city girl. I really was not down for the outdoors. My mom's an urban farmer, so this kind of doesn't make any sense. But uh, I did get outdoors this during this time. I've done a lot of hiking. I've discovered my love of hiking, which is, I think, a whole other conversation on ethical practices when you're out exploring nature. But I've appreciated that. I've done a lot of hiking around Wisconsin. I have gone to like Devil's Lake, a bunch of the parks that we have. I've also been getting into Airbnb experiences as a way to kind of creatively travel. I stayed in a school bus up north in northern Wisconsin and like this this couple's like they have all this land and they just have a, like a big blue school bus. And so it got me up to northern Wisconsin to see what's up there. They have a lot of great food up there, actually. And then figuring out how close Upper Michigan was to Wisconsin. So I've been doing a lot of that. So it's gotten me outside as far as discovering new um, places in my backyard and then also valuing like train travel. I love taking the train. And then as far as lessons from the pandemic, it definitely helped me process. Like, let's unpack that. I, I posted it as like an external project, but it really was me processing two years of being in grad school, studying social work, international development, and then coming out with all these questions. And I had no place uh, to put them. So I put them on Instagram. And so it, it was something that I really did not know how it was going to be received. And it became my little pandemic project. And it was very therapeutic for me to find other like-minded people who are thinking about these things um, and trying to understand them too, because there are lessons that I don't think I fully processed when I was actively traveling. And so the absence of travel um, helped me put language to a lot of what I had been feeling, but was so caught up in, you know, being a travel blogger and all of these things that I wasn't able to fully understand. And so that's probably the biggest lesson I've learned this past year. Also that I do want to live abroad again one day. And if I am going to do it, how the heck do I do that ethically and responsibly is I think going to be a big question for me going forward. I love your point about sort of having the last year away from travel as a moment to really reflect and ask questions and think through those questions. Because I must say I've had that same experience like being stepping away from travel so so intensively has really just given me the space to to think in a way that I definitely had not before about my own travels. It's been really helpful actually. All right, so 
before we go, do you want to plug your pluggables, as we like to say? <laughs> Where can people find you? And if you have any fun things coming up, feel free to tell us. Yeah, so people can find me on Instagram. I'm at The Sojourneys, which is a play in my name, Sojourner. Um, but across all other platforms, I'm just Sojourneys. Uh, TikTok, I'm kind of everywhere. It's kind of irresponsible how my social media presence at this point, but you know, it's out there. So I'm everywhere. If you look up Sojourner White, I think I'm the only person with that name. So you can definitely check me out, hit me up on any and all platforms. And as far as coming up, I'll be wrapping up season two of Let's Unpack That in June because I will be traveling and then moving abroad. And <gasps> do you know where yet? Yes. Oh, you're not telling us yet. Is this a I'm gonna keep it. A, I'm gonna keep it a okay. surprise because pandemic okay, okay. has a way of ruining plans. So I'm just gonna <laughs> yeah, keep that's it. True. That's true. Keep it there. But I do plan on moving abroad, ironically, as a digital nomad. So I'll be documenting how to do all of these things that I've been sitting in my room talking about for the past year. It's kind of a test to myself to put. Let's unpack that to the test to see what it's what it's like to actually know all of these things and how to do it in real time awesome i will be following along so that i can learn okay alpaca pals i hate to break it to you but this is the final episode of this season season three this is episode 18 of this season it has been so much fun putting together all this content for you. And I hope that you've learned as much as I have in listening to these episodes. Katie, what, what's what been your favorite episode from this season? Honestly, you're putting me on the spot. Uh, I don't have any off the top of my head because they were all so damn good. But I'm not even going to lie. This last conversation with Sojourner was so fun. And I feel like it was just the perfect cap to our whole season as a whole and kind of ties us up to season four where we have new fun things coming up. Do you want to tease anything or should we leave it a secret? Oh, we can do some teasing. Let's pull up the spreadsheet. Yeah, pull up the spreadsheet. <laughs> okay, so I'll pack with pals. The next season is going to launch probably in early October. We already have a nice long spreadsheet of ideas of topics that we want to cover because honestly, it's just never ending. We constantly have ideas. So there's a lot on the list, but um, some of the ideas that we've been thinking about are doing an episode on decentering ourselves as travelers. That's something that Sojourner talked about a little bit in this episode. Um, so we really want to dedicate a full episode to that topic. And we'll also talk about how tourism causes gentrification around the world. That's one we've been wanting to do for quite some time. Um, so hopefully we'll be able to dig into that in season four. I have some fun ones too that I kind of want to do, which maybe we should do as bonus episodes because like I look at my dog every single day and I wonder, what was your journey as a rescue from Mexico to Canada? And I'm just so curious about a dog's journey as a rescue and like everything else behind it. So I don't know about you, Erin, but like maybe we should do a bonus episode or something like that. On dog travel? Yeah, why not? Yeah, okay, I'm down. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> we did cat travel, so it's about time we, we gave dogs the mic. It's true. Um, okay, so Alpaca Pals, we're going to be on break throughout the summer, but you can expect to see us back in your feeds in October. But in the meantime, don't worry, we're still going to... Um, put out a few things here and there. We'll probably have a bonus episode this summer that might feature some real live alpacas. So keep an eye out for that. Thank you everyone for listening. We literally make this show because of you. We love that we have such a great community of people who are as curious about these travel concepts as we are. And so, yeah, keep sticking around because we make the show to answer our own questions, but also the questions that our community has. And so thank you. Thank you for being part of it. Alpaca My Bags is written and hosted by me, Erin Hines, and it's produced by Katie Lohr. Do you want to support this podcast? There are a few ways that you can. You can leave a review on your podcast app. You can tell a friend about one of our episodes, or you can share a screenshot of an episode to your own social. Any way that you can share the show is super helpful. If you want to support us financially, you can show us your love on Patreon. There, you can pledge $5 a month or more, and it directly supports the making of this show. The link to our Patreon is in the show notes. That's all for now, Alpaca Pals. I'll talk to you again in October. I hope you all get to alpaca your bags safely and soon. I have a wonderful summer. Ciao.